so. Uh, it is the second weekend of 2017, um, and as uh, we start this new year, I imagine a lot of you feel a bit excited and have a lot of anticipation about this year. Uh, I know um, many of you probably have goals and resolutions that you're looking forward to hopefully accomplishing. Um, I've never been very good at fulfilling my New Year's resolutions, but um, maybe you are. But maybe there's anticipation about that, or you just have things coming up this year that you're really excited about. Um, I know there's going to be weddings taking place this year. There's going to be uh, people finishing school. Maybe you're going to be paying off some loans you've been working on for a long time. Um, Maybe you're going to start a new job or buy a house Or maybe you're looking forward to the birth of a new child. Uh, So maybe there's things that you already know are coming, but maybe you're just excited about what could come that you're not really sure about yet. Um, But as I said, many of you are probably excited about this new year getting started. Uh, But that's not the case for everyone. Uh, Some of you may feel more fear than excitement about 2017. Uh, Or maybe if you are excited, that excitement is tempered with a concern about just what unknown issues might arise for you this year. Uh, maybe you're, you're starting uh, just a difficult season at work, or maybe you and your family are making a difficult decision and you're not sure what the results are going to be of that. You don't know how that's going to turn out. Uh, or maybe it's even something more serious than that. Maybe, maybe you have a sick family member and you're worried about where, will their health improve or maybe even get worse this year. Will there be funerals that you have to attend this year that you, that you dread and fear? Um, it's, it's easy to think about this year and be fearful. But my guess is, even more than fearful, I bet many of us are tired. Um, we're, we're, we've been dealing with sin and trials and hardships in our own lives. Uh, and we know that they're not just going to kind of poof out of existence just because it's a new calendar year. Our struggles will continue into 2017, and we wonder what just new baggage is going to be added to the load that we're already shouldering. Uh, So though there may be some great excitement about this new year, uh, there's also probably a dose of apprehension for for many of us. And honestly, those feelings are definitely not just reserved to this time of the year, not just the new year. Um, If there's one thing that we never lack or are short of, it's worry. Uh, But we need to ask ourselves, is that okay? Should Christians handle our struggles in life like everyone else does, just kind of bearing, begrudgingly accepting this burden of worry and anxiety uh, like so many people do? The prevalence of that doesn't make it right necessarily. And our passage this morning is going to address that particular issue. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 14, if you want to turn there now. And in the passage, the author counsels us on how to live in daily and joyful endurance rather than worry and fear, like we're all pretty prone to doing. No matter what happens, no matter whether it's a season of just gladness and joy and things are going well, or in seasons when it seems like everything is going wrong, uh, nothing seems to be going right. The author is giving us counsel on how we can have daily and joyful endurance, even in those times. Sin and suffering do not need to result in despair. 
In fact, they shouldn't. Instead of weakening us, they can be sources of strength and joy for us. So as we look at the passage this morning, I want you to pay attention to what the author has to say about that. Know how he counsels us on those matters. So again, if you haven't turned there yet, uh, turn to Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 14. Um, And if you have the black Bibles in the pews, that's on page 1008. So you can turn there. You guys can follow along with me as I read the passage. So this is Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 14. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all are partici- in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we haven't we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I'm not much of a runner. I ran a 10K a couple years ago, and I'm I'm glad I did it, but that's about it. Um... Give me like an obstacle course or something to climb. Give me some rocks or a tree, and I'm there. I'll do that all day long. But running's not quite my thing. Uh, some people, like, it kind of baffles me. Like, some people, their goal, one of their life goals is to run a marathon. I, on the other hand, have a life goal to make sure I avoid doing so for the rest of my life. Um, And so far, that's been one of the easiest goals in my life to achieve. Uh, But with all that said, when it comes to running the race that we see here in Hebrews 12, uh, which is the race to live a faithful and obedient uh, life before God, I want to run that race as long and as hard as I can. I want to be one who runs the race well, and I want to spend my entire life training to do so. And I want the same for you guys. I want the same for this church. 
My hope is that we would be a church that endures well the race that is set before us. I want us to be a church that doesn't falter or stop when something hard happens or comes our way, even something terrible. I want us to be people who both fail well and suffer well. And that means running with endurance, um, even when things are trying to slow us down or cause us to stop altogether. And that's what Hebrews 12 is calling us to. It's an encouragement for those who are tired in the race or who maybe aren't tired now but are fearful of what the race could bring them in days to come. Because, as we all know, if life isn't hard now, it eventually will be. It's an inevitability for all of us. So this morning, as we make our way through the passage, I want you to see how Christ is our source for endurance. Nothing else will give us the stamina that we need to make it to the end. Nothing, as we'll see, will even give us the stamina to even get started in the race, apart from him. If you're looking for like a main point of this sermon, um, the passage itself gives us a perfect one. Um, as you see in verses 1 and 2, let us run the race with endurance. Let us run the race uh, that's set before us with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But that's not only our main point, but it's the first key thing that I want us to notice from this passage. Uh, so look with me again at verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so that's referring back to Hebrews 11 um, and the just the outline that the author gives and all the different uh, men and women of the faith. Um, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what actually is running the race with endurance? What does that mean? So the passage, as we'll see, tells us one thing that that isn't and one thing that that is. So first, starting with what that isn't, what it isn't is it's not carrying our sin and other burdens with us. Um, As we see in verse 1, it tells us to lay those things aside. Now, I think for, for a good image to think about this, think about an airport. Uh, have you ever done, have you ever people watched at an airport? I love people watching. I like when I go to like coffee shops and stuff, I like to just like people watch. Maybe some people think that's creepy, but I like to do it. And I think airports are one of the best places of all to people watch. Um, you will see some fascinating people at airports doing some very fascinating things. Um, I was just at an airport um, not too long ago, and I, and I got to see this. One of the occasional treats that you get at an airport when you're people watching um, is you get to see someone that I will affectionately call Dashing Dave or Dashing Darla. Um, these are the people who got to the airport late or who are on a transfer flight and they don't have quite enough time to get to their next flight. So they're dashing off, they're running with all their carry-on luggage, trying to get to their gate so that they can make the flight on time. Um, Most people are just kind of casually walking along through the airport, but then you see this one or two people every once in a while come like lumbering through trying to run. Um, And when you see all of these 
Daves and Darlas, you'll notice a couple key facts about them. Um, one of them is that they're working very hard to run at a fairly agonizingly slow pace. Um, with all the stuff that they have in their hands and on their backs, they're, they're trying to run hard, but they're just not getting very far. They might be moving a little bit quicker than uh, the people that are just walking alongside them. Um, it, it's, it's, it's like one of those dreams when you're trying to run away from something, but you just can't seem to get away from it. Um, it just seems like they're in that scenario. Um, second, they look really frazzled and distressed, and for obvious reasons. Uh, they just want to slow down and take a break. They're tired of running, but they can't. They need to make their flight, and so they just keep pressing on. Um, and then third, they're, they're kind of a, a really sad sight to see. Um, no one wants to be them, and everyone feels bad for them when they see them. So that, my friends, is not running the race with endurance. Our worries, fears, and sins, they weigh us down and make us like that Dave and Darla. If we want to run the race well, we must first be committed to setting our burdens aside. Running the race means pursuing holiness and righteousness. It means seeking peace and contentment. But our natural disposition is to hold on to our baggage. It's to hold on to discontentment and discouragement and... um, just all those issues, it's bizarre, but it's true. We hold on to those things. It's easier to hold on to our troubles than to let them go. So we must first commit ourselves to letting, setting them aside and letting them go. But that, of course, begs the question of how do we do that? How do we set aside our sins and our struggles and worries? And that gets to the second thing that the passage tells us about what running with endurance is. The passage tells us that running the race with endurance means looking to Jesus. We are to look to him who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, if you look at other translations, you might see um, other words used for founder here um, in verse 2. Most of the translations keep perfecter, but you'll see some other translations use. Instead of founder, they'll say the author and perfecter of our faith or the pioneer Um, the source, or even, um, I believe it was the NASB, no, the NLT, I think, says the champion that initiates and perfects our faith. Um, And I wanted to note that because I think it's cool to read these other translations and how they translate it as well, other than the ESV, because they all use slightly different words to communicate the same idea and the same truth. We should look to Jesus because it is only by his power that we begin running and keep running until the race is done. Our faith is both founded or started by him, and it is perfected or completed by him. He was both the starter and finisher of our faith and sanctification and holiness. He's the one that does that work for us. That is what fundamentally sets Christianity apart from all other religions and philosophies in the world. In, our, in other faiths, we are expected to run that race ourselves. Um, there might be someone like um, Muhammad or Buddha, who is someone who kind of helps get that race started, puts people in the right direction maybe, but ultimately individuals themselves alone run the race and have to finish it. 
through willpower or self-discipline. We're supposed to live good lives and never give up in doing that and ultimately fulfill whatever different faith practices hold us to. Uh, So in Islam, that's done by rigorous and regular practice of the five pillars of the faith. Um, In Buddhism, that's achieved through strict asceticism and kind of denial and disassociation with the things of this world. Um, In Catholicism, that's done through adherence to the sacraments um, and the mass um, performed by the Roman Catholic Church. The problem with all of these religions is that they aren't enough. We can't make ourselves right with God. Even if we try hard and live relatively good lives as compared to everyone else, we're still selfish and disobedient towards God. Uh, We don't live perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, humble lives where we we make every decision based solely on honoring and glorifying him over ourselves. None of us do that. That means the baggage and weight of our sin is still on our shoulders. And that weight is something that we cannot stand under, let alone run a race carrying. The reality is that though we, we want to be responsible for our own righteousness, we can't be. If we want to run the race and live faithfully, we need someone else to carry us along with our baggage. And that person is Jesus Christ, as this passage reminds us. As, he, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. And he did that for us. He accomplished what we could not accomplish for ourselves. He lived the perfect life, but still died a sinner's death for us. He faced hostility. He f- faced persecution. He faced ridicule. And he did that all for us. Though he didn't deserve it, he took that upon himself. He ran the race and finished it, even with the weight of our sin on his shoulders. And we know that because he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, as the passage says. He was raised from the dead. He did accomplish that. He did fulfill that task. And he is glorified with the Father because of it. Those who trust in him are united with him in that. Those who trust in him and believe that he did accomplish that for us. We are united with him in that. And his, our sin is upon his shoulders. It is only through faith that that is possible. But it is true if we do have faith. So therefore, through faith in Christ, we may run our own races free of the weight of our sin. We can seek to live obediently and faithfully while knowing that one has already done that for us. That is what looking to Jesus reminds us of. And that is what our cure for weariness and faint-heartedness is so that we might endure So look with me at verse 3. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus' sacrifice and punishment meant that that you need not grow weary or faint-hearted. When we're struggling through hardship, we usually think that our discouragement is due to the trial itself. Our emotions kind of tell us that a change of disposition requires a change of circumstance. So our feelings will tell us, if I'm going to get better, then this problem needs to change and improve. Something outside of me needs to be different if I'm going to be happy. 
But notice, that's not what Hebrews 12.3 says. It's saying that the factor that determines our ability to rejoice in any situation is not the situation itself. It's Jesus Christ and our focus on him. The source of our discouragement is not ultimately the circumstance, but rather our perspective of Christ in it. If we remember what he accomplished for us on the cross, then we can endure any trial obediently and joyfully. Now, I don't want to minimize grief. That doesn't mean that tears won't come. Jesus himself cried and mourned at the death of Lazarus, and that was even though he knew he was going to revive him. And he also grieved deeply in Gethsemane. Grief is, an appro- is appropriate because sin and death is in the world, and it's not right. But it should not be a hopeless and paralyzing grief. Again, that's because Jesus freed us from the weight of our sin, and that utterly changes the way that we should view our trials and hardships. And that leads us to our second point. Look with me at verses 5 through 11. It says, And you have forgotten, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have, an, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So looking to Jesus helps us endure the race of life because running the race without the weight of our sin is proof that God's discipline is not retribution, but actually it's love. What retribution could he have towards those who are not guilty before him any longer? The question expresses the incredible reality of our place before God because of Christ. If we still bore the weight and guilt of our sin, then we do deserve punishment. We do deserve discipline and wrath. In a retributive, I don't know the word, um, but in a vindictive sense, I'll I'll use that one, um, we would have every reason to believe our trials are part of God's retribution against us for our sins. If we still bore the weight of our sins, then we would have every reason to feel weary and faint-hearted? What hope would we have if we were bearing that load and had no way of putting it aside? But as Christians, our faith rests on the fact that that isn't true. Jesus took the weight of our sin and he, bear, he bore it for us on the cross so that we don't bear it anymore. <clears throat> so when trials hit us as Christians, they are not because God is treating us as his enemy. We are not... F- We have not fallen from his good graces. It is actually because he is treating us as those who he loves. 
as verse 11 says, God's discipline of Christians is our training. He is fulfilling the role of an, of an athletic trainer or coach to us. When we face hardship, whether that's due to sin or suffering, any trial that we face um, that's considered discipline, God is wisely using that as a training ground for our souls, just as we train our bodies. Think about what would happen if we all ate and did everything that we wanted to. We, I mean, just think about that. If, if we showed no restraint and we just did purely what we wanted, we would never show, show any restraint in our diets, for one. We would just eat what we wanted. And we would never push our bodies beyond what was comfortable, what was enjoyable. Think about what state that would leave us in physically we would be a mess. That would be disastrous. If, if you guys have seen the movie Wally, we would basically be the human beings in that movie where they, they can't even walk on their own. They're just hovering around on these machines because they can't support their own body mass. That would be us. We would be a mess. It would be horrible. That would be a terrible condition to be in. We have to push our bodies beyond what is comfortable so that we can be strong. We have to restrict our diets to some degree if we want to be healthy. Trainers force us to push ourselves beyond what we enjoy for the good of our physical well-being. And once we've completed an exercise, they just push us further. They increase the number of reps or sets, or they increase the weight resistance that we have to do for us. You're never going to be ready to run a half marathon if you only run as much as you want to any given day. You're never going to be ready for it. You have to push yourself to work harder and run longer and farther than you want to so that you can be prepared for that. And that's the role that God is playing in our lives. He is helping us to do that. He is training us to do that so that we can be stronger, so that we can endure better and more faithfully. Trainers challenge us in areas where we are both strong and weak. They make us do things that we don't even think that we're capable of. God does the same thing in our training, and he uses our trials to do that in our lives. He places us in situations where he knows our patience and love will be tested. By doing so, he allows us to see how impatient and unloving we really are, and then he helps us to grow through that so that we can be more patient and loving people and reflect the character and nature of Christ more. He does the same thing with our affections and our devotion. He places us in situations where he knows we will be tempted with our idolatrous desires. Now, he's not doing that to lead us into sin, but he is doing that so that we can see the idolatry that is present in our own hearts so that we can repent of it and turn from it and pursue him rather than our idols. He's giving us an opportunity to exercise our um, our repentance. He also allows us to suffer and he allows us to grow weak so that we might remember that our strength and security is in Christ rather than ourselves. Now, obviously those examples aren't exhaustive. They don't explain every different trial or scenario you can be in, but they do demonstrate that Christians never face trials that are not meant to help us improve and become stronger in faith and godliness. But the passage goes even deeper than that. It's not just calling us trainers. 
It does talk about our training, but God is not merely a coach to us. A coach doesn't need to love the one who they're helping train, but God does love us. He's not only our trainer, but he is our father. His discipline is upon us because we are his sons and daughters. Just like a coach would be negligent if he didn't push, push you, how negligent would a father be if he never withheld anything from his children? Parents, how would your children turn out if you gave them everything and anything that they ever wanted? Non-parents, you don't need to be a parent to realize that that would not be good for kids. That is detrimental for children if they always get everything that they want. Kids who grow up that way, who grow up getting exactly what they want all the time, who are never challenged or disciplined, they do not grow up to be well-adjusted, successful adults. They pretty much, I don't want to say always, but pretty much always grow up to become self-centered, indulgent, and lazy because they have no training otherwise. In their eyes, they should have everything. They shouldn't have to do anything that they don't want to. Uh, and so, they, again, they become self-centered, indulgent, and lazy. Um, a parent would be negligent, and I would go as far as to say abusive, to raise their children to become like that. The, the children have no concept of self-sacrifice. In a sense, in other words, they are utterly unlike Jesus Christ and their character if they're allowed to, to grow up that way. But our Father, he disciplines us because he knows what is best for us to shape us into the likeness of his Son, Jesus Christ. He's not only training us, he's nurturing us so that we would develop into those who display godliness and righteousness in our lives. And he does it with wisdom and with patience and with compassion on a scale that no earthly parent compares to. Consider God's command in Ephesians concerning fathers. He says in Ephesians 6, this, 6, this is verse 4, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. God exemplifies that command perfectly demonstrated and fulfilled. He does that perfectly. He's the type of father who never does anything to his children that is not what is best for them. As sinful parents, we can often discipline our children out of our own selfish motives, just because we want them to be quiet, because we want time to ourselves. It can be motivated by us and not what is best for them. God never does that. He always knows exactly how to discipline his children, to teach them the most important lessons. And he always does it in just the right amount so that they are not unjustly provoked or hurt and discouraged. A child who is running into a busy street needs much stronger response from the parent than a child who just like drew with a marker on the table. You need to strictly scold the child for running out into the street. It's for their own safety and concern that you do that. Um, and God treats us similarly. He responds perfectly to each one of his children in each of the different situations that we're in so that we might grow and thrive. His display, his display of that discipline, it, it's going to be painful at times. That is what discipline is by definition. It's unpleasant of an experience to endure. 
but it's good for us. His motive in all that he wills for us, even our trials, is our ultimate flourishing. So such a remarkable reality demands a certain response from us as Christians. And that response leads us to the third and final point that I have for us. God does not discipline us out of retribution or vindication. Our temptation is always going to be to demand that God remove our trials to demonstrate his love for us. Our gut reaction is to say to God, if you want me to believe that, I, that you love me, then you need to take this from me. I'm just going to assume that you hate me until you remove this hardship. But do you see how wrong that is given which our trials actually are? Even in situations where our hardship is a direct result of our sin, God is acting as our trainer and father, not as our prosecutor. Jesus was already indicted for our crimes. He took that on the cross. He allows us to suffer in our sins so that we would see what it is, so that we would turn from it, and that we would return to it no longer. He wants us to know that it displeases him, not because he hates us, but because he wants us to learn that it's wrong. As Hebrews 12.10 again says, For they disciplined us for a short time. So this is talking about our earthly fathers. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. If we are willing to look to Christ in our trials, we will see the love of God displayed to us through them. They are not demonstrations of his hatred. They are demonstrations of his love. We must work at reminding ourselves of that amidst our trials. Because when we're in them, we're not going to want to believe that. So we need to remind ourselves and discipline ourselves to remember that, to look to Jesus in them. Because of him, our trials are acting as a refining love for us. And we can be thankful for that. Now, also, children never see the good in their discipline when they're young. Every punishment seems uncalled for and unjust to kids. To them, it always seems like too much, and they just view it as nothing more than vengeance on the part of their parents. Which one of you has a child, when told that he or she was going to be grounded or spanked, responded with, well, thank you, Mom and Dad. That, that discipline, that seems fair and appropriate for what I've done. I'm sorry for that. Thank you for your discipline. That is just. Like, no kid does that. No kid has ever said that. When children grow up, they might recognize the value of the discipline that they experience, but they don't when they're young. They see, when we grow up, we can see how that discipline, though, shaped us into becoming better people than who we would have otherwise have been if we weren't disciplined. We are the same way with God, except, honestly, if we're going to be yeah, if we're, going, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we're not grown up yet. We're still very much young children with God. We are like little kids who think every instance of discipline is wrong and needs to end immediately. God is patient with us, though, and he will continue to do what is good for us even when we rebel and complain about what he's doing. 
It is our responsibility, therefore, to trust him and his wisdom, even if it doesn't make sense to us. It's not going to all the time. Some of the trials that we face aren't going to make any sense. It's going to be, sometimes we're going to face one right after the other, and we're going to think, God, I can't handle this any longer. You're, doing too, you're allowing too much to happen to me. But he does know what he's doing. He's training us. So we need to trust him and his wisdom in that. Such trust fuels our endurance and allows us to fulfill the last bit of our passage. So look with me finally at verses 12 through 14. It says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That is what practicing endurance looks like. When we look to Christ as our sin bearer, we are able to fundamentally alter the way that we view our trials. They're not pointless occasions of suffering, and they're not ruthless punishments handed down by a harsh judge. They are painful, yes, but the pain later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, as verse 11 said. It is refinement that is meant to make us holy like our Lord. And sometimes, all that means, is all that holiness that it's teaching us to be, can simply be continuing in the same acts of obedience in trial as we do when we're out of it. If keeping up with prayer and Bible study during hardship was once difficult for you, but now it isn't, or it's just less difficult, that's growth. That is a sign of God's sanctification and grace, and praise him for that. He is growing you. He is helping you to endure. He is strengthening you. So rejoice in that. That is why we're able to lift up our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. The author of the book of Hebrews is calling us to devote ourselves to the assurance that God really is doing a good work in us because we no longer bear the weight of our sin. And that assurance in Christ will keep us going. It will give us endurance so that we can run the race to the end. And the race that we are running will bring healing, not exhaustion. Now the passage ends with a reminder to strive for peace with others and holiness. And don't overlook the final somber statement that it says. It says that without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Now, running the race requires confession, repentance, and mortification of sin. Yes, Christ has run the race for us, but that does not mean that we don't do anything at all. We still seek and pursue holiness. We still need to choose righteousness rather than sin when we are tempted. One who's truly trusting in Christ will not be okay with a life of sin and righteousness. We are not saved by our own holiness. We're saved because of Christ's. But a mark of the salvation that we have is that we are in pursuit of holiness. So friends, do not stop fighting against your sin. Your father loves you and is seeking to make you holy through discipline. He's seeking to help equip you to fight your sin. Do not ignore him by escaping into deeper sins. Turn to him and repent, and he will show you freedom from those sins. Now, I do want to address men specifically. Um, I I especially want to stress this point to you. 
Um, and I, I want to do that because sexual sin is too prevalent and too destructive to not address. If you are regularly viewing pornography, do not ignore the ways that the Lord is trying to convict you of it. Because I'm sure that he's doing so even if you don't recognize it. If lust and pornography are current struggles for you, you should not be surprised if you're dealing with discouragement or apathy or distance from the Lord or something along those lines. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you probably are, in fact. That is his loving discipline to you. Heed his warning. Do not simply retreat further into sin because of shame or embarrassment. Do not let your sin control you. Look to Christ and repent and seek help from others. You can and will experience healing if you do so. And again, that's not true just for men in that particular struggle. This is true for all of us, men and women, regardless of the struggle that we're dealing with. Just don't stop fighting and running the race. As Hebrews 12 exhorts us, let us all run the race, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's remember that and live that out each and every day of our lives so that we might do so joyfully and faithfully. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Heavenly Father, um, God, we thank you so much for the fact that we can believe and trust in your promise that Christ has taken the weight of our sin upon himself. He truly is the founder and perfecter of our faith. God, thank you that because of him, we can know that your discipline is meant for our good. God, you use it to grow us and to strengthen us and equip us for the trials that are to come later in life. God, you use it to refine us and to make us holy. God, when we're in the midst of trial, it is so difficult to, to see that and to know that and to believe it and to be thankful for it. But God, help us to do so in the trials that are to come in each of our lives. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for uh, his willingness and his power to, to bear the cross. God, we rejoice in him. We worship him this morning, and we pray this in his name. Amen.